You're now tuned in to the Better Brain Podcast with your hosts, Miles Sorrell and Dr. Michael Lewis. Dive deep into the world of brain health, the latest in neurobiology, natural health, and nutrition. Stay up to date with groundbreaking research and discover the power of natural products and lifestyle choices. Stay curious and stay informed because when it comes to your brain, knowledge is power. Hello, and welcome to episode one of the Better Brain podcast, sponsored by Natural Stacks Dietary Supplements. Here at the Better Brain podcast, we discuss the latest topics in neurobiology with a specific eye for natural products research and various interventions such as lifestyle and diet that can augment cognitive health. So my name is Miles. I'm a doctoral fellow at the University of Padova, and I'm joined by Dr. Lewis. Yeah. Hey, Miles. It's I, it's always good to reconnect with you. We've done uh, some great work, I think, in the past together, and um, and I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, so I'm Dr. Michael Lewis. I am a classically trained physician, allopathic physician, an MD with an MPH, an MBA, and a bunch of other things. Um, my really short story is I graduated from West Point played Army for a few years, and then decided to go to medical school at Tulane University down in New Orleans and continued on with my Army time and training um, through Johns Hopkins, Walter Reed Army Institute of Research. And um, at some point down the line, I was a professor at the, at the medical school in Bethesda, the military medical school and hit upon the idea of why are we using nutrition to help our soldiers recover from traumatic brain injury and went asked somebody and they said, I said, is anybody looking at it? They said, no, why don't you? And I was like, because I don't know anything about it. And he goes, yeah, but you're the only one asking the question. That was 15 years ago. So I've been on that quest ever since. Awesome. And I'm really excited to be doing this podcast with you. Uh, if you search on Google or YouTube, traumatic brain injury and omega-3s. Uh, there are numerous podcasts where you're the guest, but now you're a co-host with me as we uh, start episode one of the Better Brain podcast. So thank you for this collaboration. And uh, what a fun way to kick off this new podcast by discussing traumatic brain injury and <laughs> omega-3. And so uh, for our first time listeners, I imagine that the way this podcast is going to work is we're going to discuss the latest topics in brain health in general. Uh, we have some breaking news that will start off the episode, and then we're going to discuss a scientific paper of high relevance and impact uh, to structure the discussion for the rest of the episode. So I guess uh, what's at the top of the order for breaking news? I guess uh, Fiji, uh, Fiji was successful against Australia in rugby. And I'm not really a rugby person, but it's a rough and tumble sport and a lot of opportunities for athletic related injuries. Tell me more about that. Well, I, you know, I will, uh, I will uh, start off by saying um, that I'm on the board of directors of National Collegiate Rugby and I'm the head of their medical and safety committee. So rugby is pretty near and dear to me. I, I played all four years at West Point, my, uh, my senior year there. A long time ago, we were uh, ranked number one in the country going into the national playoffs, which unfortunately we didn't win. 
Um, and so I, you know, rugby has been a part of my adult life uh, off and on for, you know, well, my adult life. And but what's the big news right now, the current news is, of course, the World Rugby Cup 2023 being played in France, just up the road from you. And uh, and in fact, I think Italy played yesterday against uh, Uruguay, two, right? Uruguay. Yeah, they're yeah. two and oh, I, I believe uh, in their pool. It's they're in the toughest pool. I don't know if they're going to survive New Zealand and south africa no i'm not sure no france new zealand and france in the same so i don't know if italy is going to make it through but well it, it'll be fun to watch uh but yeah rug, rugby is a rough and tumble sport um boy the, those boys from fiji are just absolute monsters yeah i would not want to be it's like stepping in front of a a, a freight train uh and they Fiji beat Australia, I think, the first time in 70 years as um, yesterday. So, or not yesterday, but this weekend. And um, so it's lots of great rugby still to come. They're still in the pool rounds, and then we'll get to the quarterfinals uh, in a couple weeks and, uh, and the finals being held the end of October in the Paris area, area uh, at the National Stadium, Stadium in Paris. But yeah, rugby is, you know, a lot of people say it's like American football without the helmets. And yes and no, uh, American football was probably derived from rugby. Uh, rugby actually derived from soccer or, okay. foot, or football, as the rest of the world calls it. And, um, and you know, obviously it's evolved from that. But it's, yes, you can only move the ball forward by running it or kicking it you cannot throw it forward and all 15 players on the team have a role every play it's not like american football where the quarterback gets the ball and then whatever he does with it to the receivers or running backs or keep himself you've got you know 10 other players that, or nine other players that may not play any kind of a direct role in rugby everybody can get the ball Everybody has to play defense and offense, and it is some hard, hard hitting at this at the World Cup level. I mean, the best teams in the world will, you know, be in the semifinals, or um, you know, and right now there's no clear favorite. Um, so that that'll be fun to watch. And it sounds like a really fast-paced sport as well given everyone's involvement on the team. Now, I wanted to ask you, of course, with, uh, given the intensity of the sport without helmets, what is the rate of injury among players, especially head injury? Uh, certainly, if you look at the percentage of injuries, say, um, and it depends on at what level, you know, are you talking high school and youth? Are you talking college? Are you talking clubs? Are you talking um you know professional level rugby or are you talking about national team world cup type of things or they're, they're all a little bit different you know only the best of the best get to the top of the uh european leagues uh typically european but also japan and new zealand and australia have pretty significant leagues and uh, south africa um you get to the top of the leagues of the there it's they're you know, professional teams. And that's where 
the national teams draw from those players. So when you have that level, um, first of all, they're just absolutely huge. The, the size of players, just like in American football uh, from 30, 40 years ago to now has just, you know, weightlifting and um, nutrition and all kinds of things. It's the size of rugby players today is just absolutely monstrous. Um, but that's also offset by the best teams, the best players have been playing most of their lives and they're very good at technique. So you're not going to throw yourself headfirst into a tackle like they do in American football because you're not wearing a helmet. And so they're a little bit really more cautious about technique. I, yeah. I will say, you know, because we were one of the, well, like I said we were the number one ranked team my senior year in college. And uh, we used to love playing the European teams that would come through because we'd learn from them and it was just such a different, better faster moving game what we hated was playing like the upstate new york small college uh club teams where it was a bunch of ex-football players drinking beer and they had no idea how to tackle they thought that you tackle like football and that was the games where we you know people would get hurt uh we you know not the european teams where the technique is you know something you grow up with so it really so the the size of the players and the lack of helmet is really offset by the level of experience and technique. Gotcha. Uh, however, I guess uh, as someone that is not as sporty, uh, or is not you know I wouldn't I personally don't play team sports uh, as much as perhaps I would like to, but I keep imagining the you know the concussions or the traumatic brain injury that the potential is therefore among rugby players. Um, I mean, perhaps we can just talk a little bit more about your experience with traumatic brain injury and healing it. Uh, I mean, speaking of breaking news, there was a new study that came out that had shown that among individuals with concussions earlier in life that it could predispose for cognitive dysfunction later in life. So, you know, what is the fate of the upstate New York rugby player that drinks beer and gets their head hit? <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of debatable and controversial science about it. And particularly when it comes to the NFL and, and American football, um, group out of Boston uh, has a brain bank and they're always talking about CTE and how 80 some percent of the brains that they look at in um, post-mortem or have evidence of CTE. Well, there's a huge, huge bias there, right? And there, that's a, an important numerator, but there's absolutely no denominator. How many NFL players have there ever been in the history of the NFL and how many do we know uh, died of, with or of, or as a result of CTE? It would be a fraction of a percent. And so it makes for, um, Interesting news, much better, bigger epidemiologic studies need to be done. But I always look at it, I kind of jump, and I have been accused of this way too many times, and it got me uh, basically uh, when I was at the Foreign Services University Medical School, um, and I kind of jump over the problem and like, well, what are we going to do about it? And, you know, that's that's where my passion is, is not in the diagnosis. 
I can look at somebody, I can see the tape or I can be on the sideline of the field or uh, take a decent history and a quick exam. And you could tell if somebody's had a concussion or not. We don't need multi-million dollar diagnostics per se. They help and they're good. They're just not to the point. I jump all, I jump over that. I, I already got a five cent solution. Let's implement it. And uh, that's what I've been kind of the bandwagon I've been beating for the last 15 years. And of course, based on our previous discussions, you know, I'm pretty familiar what, what you're alluding to. So um, omega threes, right? What are the nutritional solutions that we can use to support our brain under stressful clinical conditions? Uh, and I say stressful, not as mental, emotional stress, but in, you know, actual physical uh, stress, such as in the form of a traumatic brain injury. Well, right. One of, one of the things, uh, you know, here's how I describe it to patients is you go outside to get the morning paper, if anybody does that anymore, go out to the car and you slip on the ice and your feet go flying and you're, you know, you land right smack on your head, right? The back of your head, or kind of like a quarterback being tackled and falling backwards, right? And their head being slammed on the, on the field or on the turf. Uh, so what happens? You know, it gets into Newton's laws of physics and, you know, body in motion stays in motion and F equals MA and all those good fun things, right? The brain's not a bowl of jelly. It's, you know, while the outside white matter uh, cortex is gelatinous, underneath is really where a lot of the main functioning occurs in the, in the old brain or uh, the brain stem and, uh, and above. And those are much more complex, these, these dense um, uh, organs within the brain, basically, different parts of the brain. And so you hit your head when you fall on the ice and your brain keeps moving inside your skull. You've got that cerebral spinal fluid. It's supposed to, it prevents minor little injuries, but not like a big fall when you, you know, you hit your head on the ice. Um, and so what happens is your brain keeps moving until it gets stopped and acted on by another force, right? And that deceleration is when the brain hits the inside of the skull. And so there can be reverberation. But if it's not a severe or even a, by definition, a moderate TBI, traumatic brain injury, mild traumatic brain injury is 90, 95% of all brain injuries are mild. We also call them concussions. There's not a difference between a mild TBI and a concussion. Uh, it's just a different name. Um, and you don't, even if you go to the emergency room after having a concussion, um, if they do a CAT scan or a CT scan, it's not going to, it's almost never going to show you. The only reason why they're doing a CT scan is make sure you're not bleeding like actively in the brain that is going to cause problems. Um, but what happens is that impact, you're causing bruising, a contusion, and right, if you twist your knee, what happens? It swells up, right? You need that partly because blood vessels are being broken and stuff like that, but it swells up because you need inflammation. Inflammation is life. And, you know, we hit your brain, you damage your brain, that microscopic that you won't even see on a CT scan, there's still inflammation that starts in these biochemical cascades. The problem is we're really, our, our dietary habits, our food supply, our, everything about 
that if you talk in just terms of omegas, we are flush in omega-6s. And the downstream effect of omega-6s are to promote inflammation. And that's important, right? You need that repair to your knee when it swells up. But we need to, what do we do? We ice it and, you know, we try to get the swelling down, right? The edema, the inflammation. Well, the same thing with the brain, but we can't see it. So how do we get that microscopic neuroinflammation under control? And that's what omega-3s are for. They're meant to balance. You need the inflammation, then you need to be able to resolve it. Uh, right. I, always, I, I just want to stop you there for a moment because I, well, I just really love what you said that inflammation is life because, you know, you hear every day about all of these diseases related to the brain, the joints, et cetera, et cetera, are inflammatory diseases, but it's, it's the lack of resolution of inflammation that transitions a scrape into you know, a prolonged chronic degenerative disease that we don't have really good answers for unless you start to examine the nutrition science. So let's just orient ourselves around around the chemistry for a moment and then I'll let you keep, keep talking. But uh, no, just, just you know, uh, what really are these, these omegas? They're lipid mediators, they're lipids. Um, and the reason why we're talking omega-3 or omega-6, uh, it's, they're polyunsaturated fats. That means they have double bonds along the carbon chain. And the omega-3 has the double bond starting at the third carbon from the end of, of the tail. And the reason why that's important is that whether it's an omega-6 or an omega-3, our body takes these lipids in our food supply. They get incorporated into our cell membranes, and then they get converted into uh, almost neurotransmitter-like compounds, lipid mm -hmm. mediators, leukotrienes, prostaglandins, marisins, resolvins, that all have different functions in the blood, in the immune system, uh, in the cell. Uh, endocannabinoids also being another metabolic biochemical fate of the ingestion of uh, omegas. And as you pointed out, in the standard American diet, we have this abundance of omega-6 uh, that includes arachidonic acid. And uh, again, that gets shifted into these lipid mediators that then drive an inflammatory response, which isn't bad. It's just that we're saturated in our cells with all these omega-6s. So there's this constant on inflammatory signal. We need the omega-3s to help to balance it in the other way. Do I have that correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, and and so you're right. It's not about the inflammation. It's about the resolution of the inflammation. That's the key. But that's also the key we're missing because the um, the typical, like they call the standard American diet is very heavy, 20, 25 to 1 type of um, ratio of omega-6s, the pro-inflammatory, to the resolving omega-3s. I mean, I've, I've done, you know, studies of thousands of soldiers in the military, and I think we came up with a, it was either 22 or 25 to 1 ratio of omega-6 to omega-3 in the blood as, you know, being measured. And so it's it's no longer a fair fight, um, you know, so that's one of the issues. Um, and, the, you know, we need to decrease the omega-6s in our diet, but that it's fat right how long is fat going to stay in your body it's going to take months to years well i've got somebody with a concussion a head injury 
I got to play on the other side of the coin, the omega-3 side. So how do we get these omega-3s up as quick as possible? And so I, I do what I call targeted nutritional therapy. Um, and specifically, my you know one of my original ideas was how do we develop that, you know, uh, what I now call the omega protocol. Um, and so it's, it's really about a loading dose. How do we get the omega threes up as quick as possible to start to counter the effects of the omega sixes? I'll just throw in one quick story. Um, I always look at Muhammad Ali, you know, uh, took a few punches to the head right. as, a, as a young man and he ultimately died with of and with Parkinson's disease. And, you know, seeing the last few decades of his life, it was, it was kind of sad because, you know, he was such an amazing boxer, such an amazing athlete. The question you got to ask yourself, is there a connection, right? And we're looking at that with CTE and football players. Is there a connection? Yes, there is. And I would argue that connection is inflammation that never fully got resolved. Yeah. I mean, it's much more complicated than that, but inflammation is definitely, I, to me, that chronic inflammation is huge. It's key. Right. And I think what some people don't realize is that when we're talking about chronic inflammation, we're talking about this low-grade inflammation, this activation of the immune system, the secretion of inflammatory factors that is just constantly stressing out the cells, effectively shortening their replicative capacity, their ability to adapt to the environment. So, you know, there's also various nutritional strategies that can help to lower inflammation aside from omega-3s that also involve strengthening the cellular's homeostasis capability, its homeostatic capability. Well, that's, that's what you're doing your PhD work on, right? <laughs> right. That's a, you know, and uh, that's a story for, uh, uh, for another another, another episode another for podcast. sure but uh, i mean the mechanisms behind uh, brain inflammation are really quite complex and you know we would love to say oh it's this thing take this pill and you're done and of course you've certainly had a lot of success treating your patients with omega-3s but actually today i wanted to discuss this paper that i think really underpins how complex the story is um, but I, I'm curious to hear if you think it has, if it has any clinical relevance outside of what I think is some really interesting biochemical and um, uh, yeah. biochemical relevance. But, yeah. uh, you know, so I, I'm talking about this, this paper, which we'll put in the show notes uh, that mm -hmm. was published in the journal Cell, which is one of the most prestigious journals in all of biomedicine, I would argue. And so this was a... Queensland University in Brisbane, Australia, they had shown that microglia, which are one of the brain's resident immune cell types, actually promote the healing in following a traumatic brain injury in mice in a manner that is dependent on one of the cytokines that is inflammatory, IL-6. So yes, go ahead. Well, it, yeah. it makes sense, but just to give the listeners a little bit more background. So, you know, the microglia are essentially like in a neutral state until they're acted upon by things like IL-6 and other uh, mediators. And then they differentiate into one of two types, either the pro-inflammatory type or the anti-inflammatory type. 
And so, but they've got to be activated. And so it makes sense that an inflammatory mediator would activate them. The question is, which direction are they going when they're activated um, is, is the bigger question, but it makes sense, right? You, you're not gonna, you don't need resolution of inflammation unless you have inflammation. So how's that being mediated? How's that being signaled? Broadly, I also want to emphasize that in research, I feel as though there's certain dogmas whereby scientists try to frame, uh, you know, and we should all be unbiased, but, uh, you know, a lot of research is, of course, influenced by certain biases. You know, it's in the name of, of certain proteins or they name receptors after the toxicants that, you know, the, that are activating the receptors rather than their endogenous function because they discovered the receptors. Um, via those said toxicants, for example. And I, I think that uh, can in some ways drive, you know, some hidden biases in, in research. And so, you know, one of the kind of popular conceptions that this paper actually debunks is that the microglia in uh, are only causing this sort of inflammatory state in the brain. I mean, the state of the science for many decades was that the brain is this immunologically privileged region in our body where the typical immune players don't sneak across the blood-brain barrier and don't really involve themselves with neurobiological processes. And we now know that that is not really true, but there is you know, a grain of truth in, in that kind of paradigm a little bit. And so for the longest time, microglia, which are cousins of peripheral macrophages, were thought to be the primary resident of the immune system in the brain. And you find activated microglia that seem to be correlated with worse outcomes in neurodegenerative diseases such as Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, traumatic brain injury. But uh, what this paper had really elegantly done and why it got published in, in Cell is because the, the scientists really backwards and forwards use multiple genomic and pharmacological techniques to show that in fact the microglia have a positive role in protecting the brain and actually not just protecting the brain cells but actually triggering uh, adult neurogenesis uh, new nerve cell formation in the hippocampus that has to do with memory so uh, what the scientists had done was they were able to remove microglia from mice uh, that had been given a traumatic brain injury. And for some listeners, that might sound a little barbaric to give mice a traumatic brain injury, but this, this is science. Um, and, and they found that uh, removing the microglia uh, neither exacerbated nor worsened the state of the traumatic brain injury. Uh, and indeed that when they repopulated the microglia, that it had a significant effect in preventing the neurological and cognitive deficits in the mice caused by the traumatic brain injury. Uh, and then they found that it was because the microglia were responding to uh, IL-6, which is the cytokine that, um, I mean, you may have heard for some of our listeners, well, you may have heard- It's very, oh, yeah, very closely associated with inflammation. Right, so. right. I mean, you see IL-6 involved with the cytokine storms that everyone at the beginning of COVID was worried about in their lungs. Um, IL-6 is associated with tissue damage in rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease, right? It's, it's involved with right. a lot of these mm -hmm. autoimmune diseases. It's considered a mediator and there are drugs that target IL-6. But here in this paper, 
the scientists actually injected IL-6 into the hippocampus of the mice that had a traumatic brain injury and they grew new neurons. <laughs> I, I mean, how do you, uh, what, what's going well, on? It, it's, it's really complicated uh, and much of it we don't understand. I mean, come on, it's the brain. We really don't understand what's going on. And when we try to minimize, this is one of the things, one of the issues that a lot of people have with the scientific method over say the last hundred years in, and particularly when we start to talk about nutritional science, we all want to get down to this minimal single action, you know, and you think about it in just clinical medicine, it's like, you have this problem, you have problem A, I'm going to give you drug B and, and try to get rid of problem A. And, you know, so we try to minimize things. And when we're talking about inflammation in the brain, it's pretty complicated, as you can imagine. And so it's not so simple to say IL-6 does X. IL-6 may start a chain of, of reactions that are become way complicated. When, you know, we talk about omega-6s and omega-3s and the downstream effects, well, I started to look at, you know, some of the, you know, there's omega-9s, there's omega-5s, there are all kinds of things, but it's not just those. There's, um, when you get digging into the cannabinoid system, it gets really complicated. So you and I know, you know, the, you know, um, anandamide or, um, you know, arachidonyl ethanolamide, right? Um, it was his technical name. It's made from omega-6s. And then when it's broken down, it breaks broken, you know, it's only around a sh very short time. It's our happy molecule and it gets broken down back into arachidonic acid, which we were just talking about how arachidonic acid is inflammatory. So how do we have this great important molecule uh, in our brains that gives us and causes happiness, much like oxytocin and, um, uh, I just blanked on one, uh, but anyway, you know, causes this happiness and yet it's comes from and broken down into a pro-inflammatory molecule. Well, the good news is, you know, omega-3s and all the other fatty acids, whether it's from coconut oil or whatever, they all have a similar thing. And so the one that's always interesting to look at is what's the analogous omega-3 and that's nickname. It's got the docosahexanoethanolamide, if I even said that correctly. Um, and the reason why you got those, so we give them nicknames and, um, and that one's been nicknamed synaptamide right. because it helps grow more and more synapses, particularly in the hippocampus. Right. So is IL-6 bringing this back around? Is IL-6 promoting the macrophages to uh, turning on the macrophages to go in and create neurogenesis. It's probably really complicated, but it's probably has something to do with the DHA we consume and which subsequently gets made into synaptamide to grow new synapses, new, uh, new connections. I, I have a big smile on my face because, uh, you know, this is a really interesting topic, of course, you know, for some of our listeners that might not be familiar, the endocannabinoid system is this uh, kind of arm of the greater lipid signaling system in our body that's comprised of the 
cannabinoid 1 and cannabinoid 2 receptors. Uh, these are receptors that are found all over the body, not just in the brain. And they mediate a number of really important signals in the body. And as you pointed out, uh, you know, the primary, the first endocannabinoid that was discovered in 1991, arachidineal-ethanolamine, uh, was nicknamed anandamide because it binds to the same receptor that THC from cannabis binds to. So ananda is the Sanskrit word for bliss. And, um, and if you switch out the omega-6 arachidonic acid that comprises the major portion, the lipid moiety of anandamide with the omega-3 DHA, docosahexanoic acid, you get synaptamide. So this is kind of a, another arm of the greater endocannabinoidome. And I think it's a really cool concept that perhaps that transient IL-6 uh, expression in following a traumatic brain injury, maybe it does activate the conversion of DHA into synaptamide if the DHA is there. This sounds like right. a proposal if, if for a DHA research is, study. We need to uh, ask Eon Kim or someone if, to, if to study this. If the DHA this. is there. I if mean, the there's going to always there. be DHA there. The question is, is it just being overwhelmed by the arachidonic acid, the omega-6? Yeah. It's, right. it, it's going to be there. So we talk about maybe sometimes, a, you know, an omega-3 deficiency, which is a very fuzzy kind of thing. It's really just when you're just below a level where you've got, it's really about that parity, right? You know, so it always comes down to balance. Well, omega-6 and omega-3 need to be balanced. The, you know, we need inflammation. We need to resolve the inflammation. You know, it's, you can go on and on and on about how many things if we're, you know, and we talk about this in general health terms. I'm, you know, feeling balanced as an example or out of balance. Um, you know, so it's, it's really always comes down to the balance and, you know, whether you're talking macrophages, omegas, uh, endocannabinoid system or whatever, it's all about balance. Right. It's about providing ourselves with the nutrients that are required to establish that balance, that homeostasis. Right. So then uh, that begs the question, okay, let's say, you know, God forbid I hit my head, how much omega-3 should I be taking? Probably more than you're currently taking. <laughs> um, I so when I designed the Omega protocol, and this is not medical advice, you know, just make sure that you realize that you know you talk to your doctor. Where talk to your doctor and all the all the disclosures. It's not you know. So I'm not giving make medical advice, but what I'm saying is, you need to be. I, I look at it as a loading dose. And so there's nothing magical about the, the number that it came up with. It wasn't through any kind of scientific, um, you know, processes, whatever. It literally got down to how many fish oil capsules do I think somebody would be willing to swallow in a day? And, um, and so the number that I hit upon was three capsules three times a day or nine capsules a day for at least the first week, if not, uh, if not longer. But then we get into quality of fish oil, right? And when I say three capsules, I mean three capsules that will have 1,250 milligrams size. But of those 1,250 milligrams, those important two important omega-3s, EPA and DHA for their initials, there's 1,000 milligrams per capsule. So I'm talking about nine grams of the 
really two important omega-3s. Not the carriers, of, the active cosopentaenoic acid, tocosahexaenoic acid, EPA, DHA. Nine, nine grams a day for a loading yeah. dose for at least a week, if not a little bit longer, uh, okay. depending on how long this has been going on. Uh, it'd be great if we could measure omega-3 and 6 levels on people before we started. We could narrow that in, but that testing is out there. It's very easily done. It just takes time. It's and not plus, standard practice in it's not standard hospitals. Practice. Yeah. Plus, I know everybody's deficient anyway, and it's not going to hurt you. Even if you're, I've had people, so many people like, I, I take fish oil daily anyway. I'm like, yeah, but not like this. Yeah. And they do. And they're like, wow, I didn't know, I, I didn't know I could feel so much more energy and think so much more clear. And, you know, it can really, if it's going to raise the curtain on that brain fog, it'll do it within two or three days easily. Wow. Sometimes a little longer, sometimes a little shorter, but not everybody. I mean, ultimately what we're talking about is a nutritional supplement, right? Not yeah. a, I use it as a targeted therapy, but ultimately it's fish oil. It's you, could you get the same effect from eating a lot of salmon? Yes, you should theoretically, maybe even a better effect, but how many people are going to be eating salmon three, four times a day? Right. It's just not going to happen. Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind is, uh, you know, of course, it can be a little bit expensive to eat uh, all that salmon. But also, if you're eating salmon, then you're not eating corn-fed beef, for example, that has higher omega-6 levels. So, you know, in addition to consuming more omega-3s, you're also excluding from your diet sources of food that may contain more degenerative ingredients. Now, I'm also reminded of the fact that in salmon, I mean, the pink color, I mean, just to change the topic for a moment, the astaxanthin uh, is the reason why flamingos are pink. It's in krill. It's, uh, it's a really potent antioxidant. And it is. Yeah, I mean, studies I, I show. Personally, yeah. I personally, I think fish oil, you know, supplements should have astaxanthin in it, and very few, if any, do. Yeah. Um, but to me, if I were making my own brand, I, you know, I'd have that thousand milligrams of each, you know, six hundred EPA, four hundred DHA. I might even do 500, 500, But I'd add astaxanthin, honestly. Yeah. yeah, I think it's really, really important. Yeah, I mean, studies show that it can help protect the skin from UV radiation from the sun. Studies show that it induces autophagy, which is kind of like our cellular vacuum cleaner that helps to remove, you know, damaged proteins and DNA that accumulate under this low-grade inflammation, right? So if we're thinking of, of the biochemical mechanisms that can support the brain and other parts of the body when we have low-grade inflammation, I mean, it sounds like astaxanthin is a perfect pair for the right. you, omegas. Often, you often find it in uh, in krill oil supplements. Yeah. Um, not so much in fish oil supplements. And um, you know, krill oil and and triglyceride form fish oil uh, are absorbed at about the same rate. So when they say krill oil is better absorbed, it, they really mean better than the um, the processed version. Uh, that we see also in the pharmaceuticals uh, called a um, uh, ethyl ester, which right. is not an oil at all. And so we don't absorb things that, you know, oil is very easily absorbed where ethyl esters, we don't have the enzymes, digestive enzymes to, to deal with that. Right. Um, but anyway, back to krill oil, krill oil, you pretty 
typically see astaxanthin as part of krill oil, which is one of its major benefits. Right. I mean, are there any other nutritional interventions that you would consider for <laughs> someone that is looking for support for their brain? I, I guess I could throw out an ingredient that just popped into my mind. I, it's like a really high quality magnesium supplement. Right. And magnesium, uh, Magnesium L3 and uh, magnesium L3 and 8, right? Yeah. Uh, I was going to say glycinate, but it, it's a 3 and 8 uh, version is known to be better absorbed by the brain. Um, and so, yeah, the quality of magnesium can also make a difference. Some magnesium is better than none, for sure. Uh, interestingly enough, I, I got to know a few years ago a, a neurologist um in the washington dc area and we were, we were talking about migraine you know concussions and migraines and stuff like that and it was interesting because i think he's from argentina so he's a little less americanized you know not born and raised here but came here for training and never left and so he thinks a little bit differently than a typical american doctor and so we we're talking about migraines and he goes well, i i you know kind of put an IV in and hit a patient with, uh, with, you know, substantial doses of magnesium IV and wow. headaches almost hundred percent go away pretty quickly because the question is how long do they stay away? You sure. know, some people it's 24 hours. Some people, they never had another headache the rest of their life or it's a couple of months and then kind of have them come into the clinic and hit them again and, you know, get on, get in the routine. And I asked, what about, you know, supplements that you would take orally and he goes just doesn't have the same effect partly because we can't take enough magnesium orally to be the same as uh, an iv yeah but you know again it also gets down to the the three and eight is one of the better is the best absorbed version of magnesium i i personally take a, a supplement of magnesium that contains the three and eight uh, taurate and glycinate forms in it and and for me that that works pretty well but uh i mean what you're saying about the iv kind of reminds me of uh, some of the stories from uh, some of our naturopath friends who would uh, you know inject themselves with uh, glutathione before their exam or something like that to <laughs> you know get a mental edge but um, no, I mean, there's there's a lot of information to unpack here. I mean, we're going to have to have a whole well, we're additional to, we're episode to, on magnesium. We're going to do a podcast series to cover how many good thing, things that are good for the brain in the supplement world. I mean, you know, throughout, there's a hundred or more. I mean, yeah. everything from N-acetylcysteine to glutathione to vitamin B. B6, vitamin B12, I mean, vitamin C, vitamin D, I mean, on and on and on and on. Never never um, mind the herbals, never mind the botanical ingredients. <laughs> yeah, the bacobas yeah. and the yeah. ashwagandhas and, uh, you know, literally we, we've we got, as I say, this is this is not a class, it wouldn't, you can't do it all in one class. You would, this would be not even a semester course this is sort of a, a phd amount of information when it comes to supplements in the brain i you know i think this is the perfect place to kind of wind down our conversation for today you know this uh it's it's kind of a nice uh point at which we can allude to what comes next future episodes of the better brain podcast so everyone that's listening thank you so much for your attention today uh dr lewis uh, always a pleasure and uh, thanks so much for Natural Sex for sponsoring the Better Brain podcast. And until next time.